Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a long sought after guest, at least for me, uh, Rob Knight. He's the founding director of the Center for Microbiome Innovation, a professor of pediatrics and computer science and engineering at UC San Diego. Uh, he's recently um, mentioned briefly, which he'll go through, is that uh, he's, he's making a pivot to work on COVID-19 because of its, uh, you know, its extreme nature of affecting literally everyone. So we're going to go into that and how uh, COVID-19 is affected by our microbiomes and how that may affect our health and uh, you know, how we respond to it. So, Rob, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Uh, sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me, uh, what up until now, what has been your work uh, in regards to the microbiome? And then let's talk about the pivot. Uh, so my lab does a lot of technology development for microbiome studies, uh, as, as well as uh, doing a lot of studies of the microbiome itself. So uh, we do a lot of things like uh, developing software for microbiome analysis, uh, developing lab protocols that let us look at thousands of microbiomes simultaneously, um, and then uh, running projects like the Earth Microbiome Project and the American Gut Project, uh, which collectively have looked at hundreds of thousands of microbiome samples, uh, not just from humans, but from uh, all kinds of other animals, uh, plants, uh, and uh, environments ranging from the soils to the oceans. So, um, so that, that's more or less what we do. Yeah, what got you interested in the microbiome uh, years ago when you first started thinking about it? I developed a lot of the technology that enabled it. So uh, I was uh, I was studying RNA structure and function as a postdoc, and uh, one RNA that there was a lot of in the databases when we were comparing naturally uh, evolved versus artificially evolved RNA was a small subunit ribosomal RNA. So I started talking to Norm Pace, who uh, was at Boulder, where I was at the time, and who was collecting a lot of those sequences. And uh, he told me that his motivation for collecting them wasn't to find out more about the ribosome, but rather to find out more about life by uh, collecting those sequences and using them to build a big tree, a uh, big phylogenetic tree relating all the organisms. And uh, I realized that we could take it a step further. And uh, with one of my first graduate students, Kathy Lozapone, uh, we realized that rather than looking at each sequence and putting the organism on the tree, we could look at all the sequences in an environment and put that whole environment on the tree and use that to compare environments to one another. And uh, that, that insight and the ability to read out hundreds of microbiomes at once with new sequencing protocols is what's really uh, played a large role in uh, enabling the field to, uh, you know, to get to the point that it has today. Yeah, I've spoken to a lot of microbiome people and they'll talk about diversity being important in health and you know they're able to now sequence uh, and see all the different strains and species that are in there, supposedly a lot of them. Um, what does the picture of the microbiome look like as you worked on? Is it is it just that you know we have a lot of different species in there, or is it uh, is there an economy of of different uh, metabolites being created, of uh, different things being digested? I mean, what's what's your picture of it now? 
Uh, well, what we're, what we're doing on our most advanced projects is we're doing uh, metagenomic sequencing to get a sense of uh, all of the genes um, and all of the strains that are involved in a sample uh, in conjunction with metabolomics, which tells us about all the chemicals. And we have wonderful collaborators like Peter Durstein and uh, Mo Jane and, uh, and, and others, um, where we're able to get an integrated view of the microbes and the chemistry that they're producing. Um, what we're getting a sense of in the human microbiome is how many factors are involved in that response, ranging from things like diet and medications that you have control over uh, to things like your own genome, uh, which you have much less control over, obviously. And uh, what we're trying to focus on at the moment is uh, what's modifiable and what's fixed. So uh, unlike your human genome, which is fixed when you're conceived, your microbiome changes day by day. And uh, a lot of changes are uh, things that you could in principle take control over. And so that's incredibly exciting given the links we're now finding between the microbiome and health, that we can not just tell you uh, what's gonna happen to you, but give you the tools that you need to change that. Yeah, so if I'm, um, if I'm taking a particular medication, um, have you figured out how my microbiome affects my reaction to that medication and why? Is it that my microbiome is eating, chewing up my medication and changing it into some other different chemical or substance that affects me differently? Or has that mechanism of, of that interplay been figured out? Yeah, so the microbiome field as a whole uh, has done a lot of work on that. And for example, uh, Pete Turnbow's lab at UCF, UCSF showed for digoxin that uh, there's a particular kind of microbe, Egatella lenta, where some of them can chew up digoxin. So if you have that microbe, then that particular drug won't work for you. And uh, similar specific pathways have been worked out for all sorts of things, uh, in, including things like uh, cisplatin, cyclophosphamide, uh, even the latest checkpoint inhibitors, whether they work for you depends a lot on your microbiome. Usually the way this happens is first off, uh, uh, you do a study to ask, is the microbiome involved at all? Um, then second, if the microbiome is involved, you start to focus in on what organisms it is. Uh, and then finally, you get to mechanism. So there are only a few drugs where we know where we really know about mechanism, but we know about a lot of drugs where either the microbiome as a whole uh, is involved in the response in some way, or uh, whether the microbiome is affected by that drug. So uh, what we're going to see is a lot more of those uh, beautiful, detailed mechanistic stories coming out uh, as the additional research is done uh, one organism at a time. But uh, as, as you can tell, uh, with, with a complexity of hundreds to thousands of organisms in um, each individual person's uh, gut microbiome, and then different microbiomes all over the body and different microbiomes in different people, uh, it's going to take a long time to, to unravel all the complexity. On the other hand, uh, you can make a lot of progress before you unravel all the complexity. So if you had a cup of coffee this morning, uh, if we ran that through the mass spec, we'd find tens of thousands of unidentified compounds in it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't know that it's going to work on you and uh, that the caffeine's the active ingredient. So a lot, of, uh, a lot of focus is going to be on finding out what are the active ingredients in the microbiome with all this complexity. Yeah, that's true. As you were talking, I was thinking, what happens to anyone that takes a certain medication or eats a certain food long term? I would think that the gut and the, the constituency of the gut would change to uh, to take advantage of you know the nutrients or the molecules in that substance. So, you know, what happens if you're on again a medication for years? Do you think that that may reduce the effectiveness the effectiveness of that medication because your microbiome may now you know a, a bacteria may come along. Uh, one that can, you know, that can use that uh, that new substance that you've been taking for a while and now change it in a way that's suitable for that bacteria. But 
maybe not for you. Yeah, well, it can go either way. So the bacteria could consume it by breaking it down into a less active form, or it could consume it by modifying it into a more active form. And uh, what we've seen is that when you take different people and you put them on the same diet or on the same medication, they don't respond the same way. They respond different ways. And so that's why we need to use techniques like artificial intelligence to uh, be able to take all that data and uh, get to where we can make individual predictions rather than trying to do it at the whole population level. What, what factors appear to modulate the microbiome? Like how persistent and resistant is it in healthy people? And you know, under what circumstances does it change or can it be changed in a way that you want it to change? Uh, it's changing all the time and different healthy people have very different amounts of change uh, week to week, even day to day. Um, because time series studies are really uh, expensive at the moment, uh, there's not a lot of information on what leads to uh, what leads to those sources of variation in change. Most of, most of what's come out so far has been what leads to variation in uh, steady state behavior. But uh, exactly what you're going to see is the methods become cheaper and more robust. And as you're able to collect more samples, um, for the same cost. Uh, what, what you're going to see is a lot more of those kinds of studies that ask what affects how the microbiome changes as opposed to what has affected how the microbiome is right now. So uh, to, to put this in perspective, um, when, when, when it costs you, so, so for example, uh, in, in the American Gut Project, uh, doing profiling costs about, uh, uh, costs about $100 a sample. And at that price point, you're probably not going to do a lot of studies uh, tracking your microbiome every single day. But if we got it down to a buck, then that would tremendously uh, improve people's ability to do those kinds of studies. And so uh, those are the kinds of things that we're working on uh, continually, trying to optimize the process, make it cheaper, um, collect the samples in a way that they're usable for those kinds of time series studies, because uh, you don't want people to participate uh, only if they have, uh, say, access to liquid nitrogen at home or whatever, right? Uh, that's kind of a barrier to uh, making these techniques available for everybody. So uh, we're doing a lot of work trying to make those kinds of at-home collections feasible uh, and stable so that you can do those kinds of time series studies. Yeah, if it got cheaper and you were able to collect at home and, and store it longer, I could see that you know, the average person would have their microbiome looked at, let's say, at least every six months, but preferably, let's say, every month, and you get a baseline for yourself. And then when you get sick, you might be able to say, okay, what did it look like before? What about now? How can I restore myself to that previous state? Exactly. And you might even be able to predict that you were going to get sick before you had any symptoms that you noticed and uh, maybe head off what was, uh, whatever was, was developing. So uh, that, that's what we think is really exciting, especially with epidemiological studies uh, like the FINRISC study, where we, looked at, where we looked at microbiomes of 7,500 people who uh, gave a stool sample for science back in 2002. And what we can do is we can track uh, what happened to them going forward. So uh, for example, we can ask things like, does, does your stool sample in uh, 2002 predict uh, whether you're still alive in, say, 2020? Uh, does it predict whether you developed uh, different kinds of diseases, whether uh, whether that's infectious disease or cancer or whatever? Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and you mentioned again at the beginning of the call, uh, before we started the recording, you know, now with the, the COVID-19 issue, um, I would guess you're looking at the dynamic of, you know, someone's microbiome versus their symptoms and what happens to them if they get COVID-19 and this is also a bigger issue. What happens when you get sick, you get influenza, whatever it may be? Um, how does your microbiome either 
you know, help with your immunity? How does it modulate your response? What, tell me about what's happening there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, last year I was um, recognized by the National Institutes of Health with a Pioneer Award, where the uh, entire premise of uh, the, the entire premise of uh, that project is uh, essentially to look at how diet and the microbiome together uh, make people either less or more susceptible to infectious disease. And so we were working on the technology stack for that uh, right when COVID-19 arrived. And so uh, what we're rapidly uh, what we're rapidly uh, retooling that whole project to look at is uh, the influence of SARS-CoV-2 uh, and the microbiome on each other. So we've been looking at a lot of uh, so, uh, so we've been looking at, uh, looking at a lot of patients who have already been diagnosed with COVID-19. Uh, we've been setting up the uh, the CDC procedure to detect SARS-CoV-2 RNA, uh, which is now not only working in our lab, but uh, we've uh, cross-validated with uh, three other labs in San Diego uh, so that we're all getting the same results and uh, looking at rolling that out uh, as, uh, as, as, a, um, as an epidemiological study uh, that would be an adjunct to, um, to formal clinical testing and so on. And uh, precisely what we're interested in is, uh, as, is, as has already been shown for other bacterial and viral infections, um, are, there, are there any things that you could take either in your diet or as a supplement that your gut bacteria might process into active forms that could then help you, uh, help you combat the virus either at the stage where you're first getting infected or in a way that would prevent you developing symptoms later? Yeah, what can you tell? I mean, not specifically, let's say, for SARS-CoV-2, but for any infectious disease, you know, viral or bacterial, um, what seem to be the factors that are affected, you know, with your microbiome? Right. Well, so so it's different for um, it's different for different uh, uh, pathogens. So, for example, for Salmonella, a whole series of uh, elegant studies showed that molecules like uh, like uh, vitamin C and uh, linalool and um, let's see, and arginine, uh, one of the essential amino acids, uh, were particularly important for Salmonella. Iron supplementation is important for uh, some kinds of pathogens, but then problematic for others, like there's a lot of bacteria in your gut that are normally limited by iron. So being anemic can actually be a strategy to, uh, to, to, reduce, um, uh, to, to reduce enteric pathogens. Uh, for influenza, um, in animal models at least, uh, plant flavonoids uh, that get converted into a molecule called desaminotyrosine by gut bacteria like Clostridium orbicindens has a huge impact on mortality in mouse models. So that was uh, some very elegant work by uh, Tad Steppenbach's work, uh, sorry, Stem uh, Tad Steppenbach's lab at Washington University in St. Louis. So, um, so there's been a very large community uh, doing these kinds of things, one microbe and one metabolite at a time. And uh, what we're trying to develop is technology that allows us to take a much broader view of the whole microbiome and the whole metabolome at once. Um, and uh, so it's sort of the difference between uh, the heroism of things like the Lewis and Clark expedition, where uh, you know it's an incredible amount of effort, but ultimately you're uh, ultimately you're uh, tracing one pathway versus being able to send up a satellite uh, where you can see everything and uh, map everything out. At once. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, create the equivalent of that satellite where you can simultaneously map everything in the microbiome and metabolome and diet. Uh, and so, so that, that's a grand vision. And, um, and so in many ways, COVID-19 is providing stress test of what we can do right now, uh, which is going to be very useful for pointing the way towards what we need to develop over the next four years. So what's the protocol going to look like for this, uh, this COVID? You're going to look, you're going to have people sampled, uh, that are asymptomatic, that have it, how often, 
But in generally, I know you're developing it, but what is it going to look like? Uh, well, there's uh, the, the several different pieces. So uh, one piece is looking at people who are um, already hospitalized with COVID-19 and have been diagnosed already. Um, a second a second component is general surveillance of the population, including uh, at-risk groups um, such as the elderly, such as people living with HIV and so forth, uh, that we have access to through collaborations like uh, AIHL, our Artificial Intelligence for Healthy Living collaboration uh, with Dilip Jesti uh, and, and with IBM. Uh, and uh, things like the HNRC, which is our uh, NeuroAid Center um, at UCSD, uh, led by uh, led by Bob Heaton, for example. Uh, we're also looking at enrolling uh, healthcare workers and other populations that are uh, very likely to seroconvert uh, over the next few weeks. So, um, so, so that's another uh, that's specifically of interest because we can get people in many cases before they're exposed to the virus at all, and uh, then then try to track them prospectively as they're in situations that are uh, unfortunately more likely to lead to exposure than uh, than we'd see in the general population. Oh, okay. You mentioned zero conversion. So that means that they're going to produce the antibodies after exposure at some point, and that's what zero conversion is? Yeah, correct. So, um, so, so being able to integrate antibodies into this is really um, is is really important. And uh, there's a lot of different companies and academic labs uh, scrambling at the moment to uh, try to get um, to try to get serology set up. But the reason why you want to know if you have antibodies to uh, SARS-CoV-2 is if you have um, if you have antibodies, you're uh, very likely uh, you're, you're very likely previously exposed and now immune. And so, being able to uh, being able to have that reassurance that uh, you're unlikely to develop symptoms uh, is, is tremendously useful for people who are first responders or healthcare workers or uh, in other occupations where they're likely to be exposed. So, what do you um, I don't know from what you know so far? What appears to be the dynamic of, let's say, again, a viral infection and your microbiome? Do, do you think the your microbes are actively contributing to your immunity and your immune system. Are they an essential part? Um, you know, how do they react when when you get a viral infection? Let's say. Yeah. So what what's what's fairly well established is for both bacterial and viral infections, whether you're likely to get infected um, has uh, depends uh, depends on what microbiome you have going in. Uh, the mechanisms are generally not very well worked out right now. And uh, it's also not known whether it's the same signature or different signatures that protect against different viruses or bacteria. Um, and again, uh, that's all uh, that, that's all research that's very much in progress and uh, very um, uh, very important in the light of COVID nineteen. Yeah. So so and, and then in terms of uh, how infection modifies your microbiome, there's not a lot of good data on that because uh, in order to in, in order to get a good baseline, you usually have to get access to people before they're infected and then track them through the infection time course. And uh, you know your institutional review board is not going to uh, approve your exciting plan to uh, round up a bunch of people who are healthy and infect them with some pathogen so that you can see what happens. There's key ethical as well as technical limitations on how you can do that kind of research. Oh, so, so that's why this is such a, a time-sensitive opportunity, sadly, because you know we know a lot of people are going to be infected, at least a certain amount. So if you can catch them now, uh, start sampling them, there's much more of a chance that they'll sadly, unfortunately, go through some level of infection. Yeah, correct. And the, the WHO says that 40 to 70% of the world's population is going to be infected. 
And uh, if that's accurate, what that means is that you can adequately power a study with say, um, uh, with, with say 100 to 1,000 people. Whereas uh, if, if you were going to look at something that was only going to infect one person in 1,000, then you might need to enroll millions of people to be able to get uh, any useful information. So that, that's why this is really a uh, unique opportunity to, uh, to develop tools that we can use, not just in this pandemic, but in any future pandemic as well. Mm, okay. So if you were to speculate, what do you think is going on or what could be going on if uh, someone gets a, a viral infection? Is it that the virus, um, I don't know, it preferentially causes the cells it affects to utilize a certain metabolite and that reduces the availability for other bacteria? Or, you know, again, if you were to speculate, what do you think the mechanisms could be? Um, well, we know we know for sure that there's a lot of mechanisms that exist in animal models. Uh, we don't know which of them are important in humans, and we don't know which are which of them are important for SARS-CoV-2 specifically. Um, so, some of the things that can happen: uh, the bacteria can make a compound that has antiviral activity. Um, the bacteria can make a compound that regulates the immune system, so you don't get the cytokine storm. That, uh, that that's often uh, that that often kills people with respiratory illnesses. Um, the bacteria can modulate the immune system, so they can change uh, things like the um, the Th17 um, cell repertoire. Uh, so so especially um, so especially looking at the Th17 to Treg ratio uh, can be very useful for understanding whether the, whether the immune system overall is in a more activated or more regulated state. And uh, bacteria in the gut, but also in other mucosal surfaces, can can affect that. Bacteria in the gut can also uh, modulate the gut-brain axis, including overall vagal tone, uh, which um, interplays with the immune system. Um, there's also training. Uh, there's also training immune cells to recognize particular kinds of antigens that can cross-react with uh, antigens produced on other bacteria or other viruses, and uh, that's another potential mechanism for uh, systemic and uh, long-range interactions. And then there's direct impact on drugs, so uh, either deactivating or, uh, or uh, converting into new and more active forms, uh, medications that a patient's taking. When, that's interesting. When someone's uh, sick, does their microbiome change dramatically in the constituent players and the frequency of them, the number of them? Um, depends what they're sick with, but uh, yes, for many conditions. Um, so so there's, there's a huge literature now uh, associating the microbiome with different diseases. And uh, for a lot of diseases in the context of a research study, you can tell who's healthy and who's sick by reading out the microbiome. And so a lot of the research effort now is focusing on uh, predicting what's going to happen in the future. So either are you healthy now, but you're going to get sick later based on your microbiome, um, so that's particularly important for autoimmune diseases like um, everything from rheumatoid arthritis to uh, atopic dermatitis to inflammatory bowel disease. Um, or if you're sick right now, uh, can we predict from your microbiome which drug you should take in order to get better? And so this project's going on on that in uh, in, in cancer, in multiple sclerosis, uh, in, in a range of other uh, in a range of other conditions. And um, in in both of those, uh, being able to being able to either predict who's at risk or being able to predict who's most likely to benefit from a particular medication based on their microbiome is looking very promising. Uh, one, one thing I should say is that it's looking promising from a research perspective. And uh, the, the gap between what you can do in a research study where everything's very consistent and uh, very well controlled versus uh, what you can sell over the counter as a clinical test at a, at, at a Walgreens or something, uh, there's a huge gap between those, those things. So you need to realize that if you see 
a research result in the scientific literature. Uh, it may be five or 10 years, even if the research is very good and the result is robust, it may be five or 10 years before all the, all the regulatory hurdles are uh, overcome. Uh, so that you can have a test that uh, that you as a consumer or uh, would be able to take or that uh, your physician could order for you in a regular healthcare context as opposed to a research context. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's, it's well, sort of like the difference between uh, discovering a new molecule that could be a drug and then actually having that be an FDA-approved drug. Uh, like That's typically a 10 to 20-year timeline and uh, costs somebody $2 billion in clinical trials. So uh, with, with tests, it's not quite as bad as that, but there's still a very long regulatory pathway where you have to do a lot of validation uh, before you're allowed to use it outside the context of research and uh, use it in a clinical care setting. And uh, that, that, that's all very important because a lot of things that look promising in research don't pan out. And so, uh, and, and so doing those additional steps before releasing things into the real world is really important. Uh, you don't want a whole lot of unvalidated tests and un unvalidated therapies uh, getting out there because, um, uh, because uh, the, the chances that they'll harm people and distract them from things that actually work is very great, uh, which, which is uh, what the FDA right. spends a lot of their time on. Well, yeah, that's why we have this regulatory process and everything. So, yeah, I know that most uh, new drugs fail. And, yep. uh, we have our, our animal models, our human models, et cetera. So, yeah, I understand that. Um, going back to, if you would, uh, mechanism, why is it that there is a uh, there appears to be a big regime change when people get sick? It seems to be a big regime change. Why does maybe our uh, predominant players in our microbiome wane and other ones come to the fore what do you think is is happening what would you guess well, well again it depends it depends a lot on what you're sick with and uh again most of our information comes from animal models so uh so, so uh, like we discussed before there's a lot of different mechanisms uh it could be competition for a particular resource uh it could be um it could be activating or deactivating the immune system um, it could be specifically targeting other uh, other players in the microbiome, um, including by pro producing antimicrobial peptides or uh, uh, other compounds like polyketides or non-ribosomal non peptides. So one one way to think about it, uh, you, you know, you know about uh, fire ecology and why planting eucalyptus trees outside Australia uh, was a really terrible idea, right? Um, Actually, uh, no. If you can go into that. Well, um, so, so eucalyptus trees got planted uh, all over the world, including here in California, as um, for, for firewood, which they're very good at, and also for railroad ties, which it turns out that they're very bad at because they twist as they dry. So, so although the wood is very hard and resistant to rot, it's not very good for that application. But um, the, the reason why it turned out to be a very bad idea is uh, as part of its natural life cycle, um, eucalyptus, it has very papery bark and very resinous wood. And uh, essentially, um, essentially, its life cycle model is that it catches fire very easily. So, if there's a lightning strike, or the eucalyptus catches fire, um, the uh, the forest fire rages through, but the papery bark uh, burns off just on the surface layer, and then the wood uh, of the adult trees is largely um, is largely preserved, including the growing layer. And then its seeds are coated in a very hard coat that requires fire to go through in order to germinate. So, essentially, the eucalyptus burns out everything else. Um, and then after the forest fire, it's the first to regenerate. And so uh, that's how it's able to uh, dominate large patches of uh, Australia as, uh, as, as the key player in that ecosystem. So, um, 
So there's a lot of pathogen, uh, pathogenic bacteria uh, in the gut, especially that do exactly the same kind of thing. Only, uh, only what they use is oxygen. So they use reactive oxygen species from macrophages um, primarily. But essentially, what they do is they induce uh, a huge, um, they, they induce a huge response of uh, oxygen-containing free radicals that wipes out a whole lot of the other bacteria in the gut, and then they have a really fast reproductive rate and can tolerate oxygen in the environment. So then uh, they regenerate and take over and then you feel really sick. So, so there's a whole lot of stories like that. Uh, so for example, that's what salmonella does to you uh, and, and why, you, uh, you know, why you feel like your intestines are on fire, right? Uh, and uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of specific stories like that where we know, uh, where we know a lot about the mechanism from uh, animal models where we can do a lot more uh, detailed work looking at experimental infection and so on. So what happens if you're uh, infected right now, let's say with COVID, you go into the hospital, and if it's a normal protocol to give you antibiotics, even though it may not be relevant at all, what would that do if, if in a lot of medical settings, people either demand antibiotics, not knowing that it's not going to help them, let's say with a viral infection, or that's part of the protocol. That would modulate their response tremendously, I think. Yeah, so, so as you say, antibiotics uh, don't work on viruses, so you definitely should not go on antibiotics if you're presenting with a viral infection. So with, with viral respiratory infections, often you get a secondary infection of bacteria uh, that you can treat with antibiotics, but uh, you, you, want to, you want to save the antibiotics for when you're actually starting to develop that secondary bacterial infection and then not take them if you're not getting a bacterial infection because they definitely won't help you with the virus and they may compromise your ability to, uh, to, to fight off other pathogens. Okay, I was just thinking about that. So what, um, I mean, with the COVID-19 surveillance that you're tooling up for, when's, what's your guess on when you're gonna have some results that you think will be usable or actionable? Uh, next week, probably. Um, so uh, things, things, are, things are moving very rapidly on this. Uh, we got the cross-lab validation results last night, which look excellent. Um, we're doing dry runs this week, and uh, we're, hoping, uh, we're, we're hoping to uh, start opening it up and uh, distributing kits um, end of this week, start of next week. Wow, that's amazing. So the protocol will be what? That, that someone will sample their microbiome that appears to be healthy right now, and you're going to be looking at their blood work to see if they have antibodies? Uh, like I said, there's a lot of different projects going on. Um, for, for the drive-through, uh, that's solely focused on testing with swabs, and we're only looking at uh, we're only looking at people who are already showing symptoms, uh, which is what the nasal swabs are uh, best validated for. So you can be infected, um, you, you can be infected but asymptomatic, uh, but it's likely that a nasal swab won't pick up that infection. Uh, what you have to do is a much more invasive procedure, like a nasopharyngeal wash. Um, which it's a lot harder to administer in a parking lot and uh, also puts the staff at a lot more risk. With, with American Gut and the MicroZeta project, uh, what that is is distributing at-home kits where the idea, uh, the, the idea is to look at a nasal swab, uh, a stool sample um, where SARS-CoV-2 can also be transmitted um, or at least shared in the stool. Uh, there's conflicting reports about whether it's infectious in the stool or not, and also a blood sample. And uh, with that, we're working with existing cohorts um, so, that, uh, so, so that we can uh, understand factors that are already being studied in different groups of people and use that, and use that to relate to infection. And so we already, have, uh, we, we already have the distribution set up with FedEx for those and so forth. And uh, that's, um, that, that's also going to go live either uh, later this week or next week. And then there's a number of other cohorts looking at uh, people who are already recovering from SARS-CoV-2. Um, 
and COVID-19 uh, people who are in the hospital right now with severe COVID-19 uh, healthcare workers of different kinds. Uh, there are progress in, in, in pro progress with uh, different first responder groups and so on. Uh, basically, we're talking about a large and complex uh, research picture and um, hundreds of different uh, hundreds of different faculty members and physicians at uh, UCSD are already involved in this response, uh, as well as a lot of collaborators around the country. So uh, it's not something that I can give you a, a, a simple one sentence answer to. It depends a lot on which project and uh, what the institutional review board has approved for uh, different populations and collection methods and so forth. Well, that is a good overview. There's a lot of activity I can hear. You know, a lot of what's going on that's excellent so, yeah, um, it's been it's been really exciting to see the research community come together so uh so a lot of groups who haven't collaborated previously are um are, are really um are really coming together to make this happen and uh the the other thing that's exciting is uh this is just one piece of it so uh so for example um so, so for example there's been a lot of 3d printing for uh for, for masks uh for swabs um, uh, for various pieces of hospital equipment and so on. Um, there's a lot of uh, engineering activity going on. Um, uh, could there be better replacements for ventilators? There's a lot of work going on on doing molecular modeling of the virus itself and then uh, using those 3D uh, computer models to, uh, to, to get a sense of uh, what drugs or what antibodies uh, could, uh, could be produced that would target the virus rapidly. And this work on vaccines and vaccine delivery methods, including uh, vaccine delivery methods that don't require a cold chain, so they can be used uh, internationally as the virus spreads around the world. But there's really there's really a lot going on. It's been very inspiring to see uh, UC San Diego come together as a campus to do this, but also uh, connections to other in institutions like, uh, like, like Scripps and uh, San Diego State University and uh, the Radio Children's Hospital of San Diego, uh, where we're all working together to uh, get a lot of these things done. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Well, uh, Rob, what do you think is gonna be possible in terms of our understanding of the microbiome over the next few years? Is anything nearing a much better understanding or who knows, are we still a ways off? Um, I think you're going to get a lot more actionable information. So uh, what, what's what's been happening over the past few years has uh, been improved methods for reading the microbiome out. We're, we're finally starting to get to the point where we can connect that to things that you should actually do. And um, what what you're going to see soonest are things that have a large effect rapidly. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's already companies um, uh, there's already companies that are looking at things like uh, diet and microbiome and blood glucose control, for example, where that's something that you get a readout in, uh, in in minutes to hours. If if you're looking for something that targets uh, obesity or Alzheimer's or other conditions that take uh, years to develop and years to modify. That's going to be a lot slower, uh, just because if you start an intervention trial now, but you need to wait 10 years to uh, get the outcome, um, being able to understand what works and what doesn't in, in a rapid way is much more challenging for that. And then um, trials that are uh, coupled to companion diagnostics. Um, so basically figuring out, are you the right person to take a drug? And uh, can you tell rapidly uh, if you should stop taking that drug? I think that also holds a tremendous amount of potential and we should be able to do things on that uh, very soon, although how much uh, how, how much the pandemic is going to disrupt uh, the research and progress on that is, uh, is, is a really open question because to do those kinds of things you need to enroll cohorts and uh, you need to do longitudinal studies and that's especially uh, challenging right now if you're not doing a study that's directly linked to COVID-19. Yeah, there's so many things to consider that's true. Well, Rob, this is great. Um, I 
appreciate all the work you're doing. It's amazing. Uh, what, what's the best way for folks to look at at least some facet of what you're doing? How can they find out more? Um, there, so, so my Google Scholar profile is uh, the most up-to-date in terms of uh, research that we're doing. And uh, then both through the Center for Microbiome Innovation and uh, through the um, through the American Gut Project and MicroZeta, uh, we, we have a fairly active social media presence that uh, documents what we're doing. Well, excellent. Rob, thank you very much for all your work and uh, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Sure. Uh, thanks, Richard. I uh, appreciate your having me on here. And uh, yeah, um, thanks for your interest in the microbiome. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.